0: Romans chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 20 and 21, and I titled the message, Pardoned and Promoted. And I thought it important to just take a moment to really set some foundations before we get into the rest of this chapter. We've really gone through just the first section of Romans chapter 3, and we've been discussing sin and righteous judgment of God, the section of sin ran very deep. We've looked at it from every angle, and it brought everybody low, and it brought everybody to the same level. And we're about to enter into the area of salvation. Now here in these verses is not the official start of that section, but it's a bit of a preview of things to come. And I want to lay down some stepping stones, if you will, a foundation, because I believe it will set, as Isaiah has been learning and taking his pilot's license, the latitude, the longitude to the right destination. We really have to set the pace here. If we're off by one degree, we're going to be off of course. And as a result, we may never live the life of victory in Christ. How many Christians do you know? that are living a life of victory in Christ, that are content in every situation. We go through a lot of things in this life, and we are told that we will. But how many of us are living that life of victory, of having the assurance of salvation? I mean, there's nothing better than that. And that's what this book is giving to us. It's an exciting thing but many times we don't remember what we have in Jesus Christ because sometimes we get into that mode where we're trying to earn that salvation again and we're trying to attain something that we can't get to. We just can't. So salvation, justification, these are all issues all the way through to chapter 8. And so this is a very, very important part of the message And I want to set a good foundation, a good path leading up to these topics. That's our intent, and that's our goal today as we look at a couple of verses just to get us a running head start into the rest of the chapter. So we come to verse 20 where it says, and we read last week, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, nobody is saved by some sort of law keeping. This is what he's saying, and it's impossible to keep it. You sin in one of them, you sin in all of them. And when we talk about sin, sin is any thought, any word, any deed that falls short of God's glory, of God's standard, of His holiness, of His perfection. It's a missing of the mark. There's an Indian whose arrow fell short of its target and he was heard to say, Oh, I sinned. And in his language he said that. It's the same word used to express sinning and falling short of the target. It's a missing of the mark and coming short of that target. These are things many of us have heard and we understand. And so the law was not there to show them what to keep or that they could keep it. Its very purpose and intent was to show them that they couldn't and that they needed to look for a Savior. They needed to look to the Lord There was no list that they could keep, and there's no list that we can keep. Many times we hold up our Bibles to these demonstrations of the gifts of the Spirit, of the edification of our lives, and we try to do them mechanically without a change of heart, saying that we look like a Christian when there really hasn't been a change of heart. This is what we want to get to today. And now Paul here is saying that the salvation, that salvation is apart from the law altogether. And they would be appalled, they would be amazed. And the natural question then becomes, how can I be saved? Which we will be getting to eventually. So Paul has proved that the Gentile cannot keep the law of conscience for salvation, he has further proved that the Jew is unable to keep the written law to bring salvation. And now, what we want to bring into view is this word justification, righteousness, salvation. I want you to jump ahead to verse 28 in chapter 3 for a moment. What it says is, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, apart from the deeds of the law. None of us can attain it. We cannot earn it. We fall short of it. That's because salvation comes through grace in Christ alone as we begin to see it come into view. Now jump ahead again to verse 31. It says this, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, this is a very key point and one we want to focus on this morning for a bit. This is the hook that everything will hang on. Paul is saying that you cannot separate grace and law. In other words, for the Christian, you cannot separate grace and obedience. They go together. They are married They go hand in hand. We abide in Jesus Christ. So we've been discussing pure grace. Yet I've mentioned several times Romans 6, 1 and 2. And just by way of remembrance, let's recap that. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So they were claiming that the Apostle Paul was teaching lawlessness. And he's saying, no, I'm not teaching that you can live however you want under grace. That would be contrary to the word of God. And he gives us the scripture in chapter six, which at that time, when we get to, we will go into more depth, more detail. So the born again Christian does not keep any law to be saved. We obey it because we are saved. This is the way then that it is established. It is carried out as a natural result in a changed life. And so when we begin to talk about grace and justification and works, it gets all tangled up because we don't put it in its proper order and we don't have the right definitions I like what Warren Wiersbe writes. He says, while I do not want to give a false assurance to any professed Christian who is not truly born again, neither do I want to cause some true believer to stumble and miss God's best. That's why these sections are so hard to teach because as a pastor, as a teacher, you don't want to give a false hope to somebody and you also don't want them to miss out on the victory of Christ. That's the desire for me is to help our church, surrender, church, live a victorious life so that in our walks in the global church, wherever we're at, we can have that holy ripple effect in our Christian walk and touch other people's lives through that for the glory of God. And so to do this, I want to give you some statistics some definitions, and some examples. Now, the statistics won't be too long. I won't go into too much history here. I want to get to the examples. But this will be our brief outline for today so that we understand what it means to fall short and what our justification in Jesus really means and what it produces in and through us. And it's good. We might think to ourselves, well, I already know these things, but it's good to be reminded. It's always good to be reminded. There's repetition throughout the Bible. So to the statistics, very briefly, justification, other words that are used from that same Greek root word occur 30 times in the book of Romans. So you can see the theme. I mean, we spend a lot of time looking at the debased human uh, person. But that's just a portion of the scripture. That's just to bring people to repentance. But it's about justification. It's about grace. It's about righteousness. It's about sanctification. So these Greek root words, they're highly concentrated from chapters 2, verse 13 through chapter 5. Verse 1. And again, as we've already stated in different areas, it's another legal or forensic term. It would then fit into what we have been discussing. Because last time we were together, we looked in depth at verses 9 through 20 here in chapter 3, and we saw what last week? We saw the arraignment, the indictment, the motive, and the verdict. But what didn't we see? We didn't see a defense. There was no defense because there is no defense. We're all born into sin. And so justification is another legal or forensic term derived from the Greek word. So those are a brief overview there. And so we come to some definitions. So the word means to declare righteous. Justification. It is part of the verdict. And and when we hear this verdict, it's very clear. It includes what then? It includes pardon from guilt and penalty of sin. Remember, we were talking about the guilty person and all the guilt that you felt. And there was no way to get rid of that guilt. It includes pardon from guilt and penalty of sin. But it's more than that. It's much more than that. It imputes Christ's righteousness to the believer's account, providing positive righteousness a person needs to be accepted by God. In other words, God declares a sinner righteous solely on the basis of the merits of Christ's righteousness because he imputed or he assigned it to Christ's account in his sacrificial death. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. First Peter 2.24 Who Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree that we having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. Jesus took it all upon himself. Our wrath completely upon him. God put it all upon him. But his righteousness is imputed to us. So not only did he take away our sin, he gave us his righteousness. So justification is a legal forensic term. In other words, it's an acquittal. We're acquitted. You ever heard that popular definition of justification? Just as if I've never sinned. People use that all the time, and it's a great definition. It's been said that this does not go far enough, though. It does not give the entire view, and it's much more than acquittal. You see, when God justifies the believing sinner, With that gavel. He not only acquits him from guilt, but he clothes him in his own righteousness and then makes him absolutely fit for heaven. Justification goes beyond acquittal to then what? To approval. Beyond pardon to promotion. Oh, it's so beautiful. Acquittal means only that a person is set free from a charge. And that's great enough. But justification means that positive righteousness is imputed. Not only acquitted, but counted righteous. What a picture of the prodigal child. A sinner that's come home to his father. His only desire was to come back and to be a servant. It's as if the apostle Paul was drawing upon this picture in some ways that Jesus was teaching. Paul has been talking about repentance giving a dark view of the human race. For what purpose? To get everyone to see the filth that they are in and the judgment that's coming. All in an effort to bring repentance. In essence, to come to themselves. You remember the story of the prodigal son outlined for us in Luke 17. He tells us that the man had two sons, One asks them for his inheritance. He goes off to fulfill all of his carnal desires and lusts. And it's fun for a while, but it ended. He ran out of money and he ended up having to take a job. And he found himself in the fields feeding pigs in the slop. And he's so hungry, he's so desperate, he's contemplating even eating the slop. Think about that. Just picture that in your mind, what that might even look like, what that might even smell like. The cold, mud, dirty, eating with the pigs. This is the human race. But then it tells us what? That he came to himself. He came to himself. He remembered how it was at home. He remembered everything came flooding back. He remembered how good the servants had it. And that is all he desired now. He just wanted to be, what, acquitted of his lifestyle. He just wanted to go back home and work his father's land. Just accept it back into the fold. That was all he was looking for. That's what the Bible tells us. So he heads back home. What then does it tell us? That his father sees him far off. And then his father drops everything and runs to him. That was unheard of for a prominent man at that time to do. And this is what Jesus was telling everybody in his story, that God the Father runs to us. And he would, and everybody would be just sitting back in amazement. God doesn't run to us. This is what we think in religion. But no, he does come to us. He does run to us. The son had all these things, remember, he was working out in his head what he was going to tell his father. He had all this stuff planned that he was going to tell his dad. Can I just come home? Can I just work the land? And we pick up the story in Luke 15. Luke 15, 20 and 24 tells us, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had Compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Oh man, I remember the day that Isaiah came out of the hospital when he had his punctured lung. Driving one day, you guys, a lot of you remember the story. Here he is making a phone call to us saying, The doctor told me to go to the emergency room, and then we didn't see him for several weeks. Couldn't get in there during COVID. Couldn't see him. Didn't know what's going on. And I remember that day that I just fell on Christina's shoulder and I just wept. Nothing I could do. A father's love. That's God coming to us. And the son then comes to him and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, what rebuke him hate him no guys bring out the best robe put it on him put a ring on his hand sandals on his feet bring out the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry let's celebrate this is my son who was dead and is alive again he was lost and he's found and he began to be merry What's amazing is without a single rebuke for his past, this father pours out his love for his son. And how does he express his joy? He expresses it because the loss has been found. Each of the father's gifts said something unique about his acceptance. The robe was reserved for the guest of honor. The ring, a symbol of authority. The sandals, these were not usually worn by slaves. So it signified that his full restoration to sonship was there. And that's us. We're justified. We're pardoned, but so much more. He forgave us of our sins without rebuke. No questions asked. We truly came to him and then he clothes us in his righteousness. Man, this is why the apostle Paul says this is great news. But it gets even better. See, his father not only acquitted him, in that justification came imputed sonship. We are heirs of the king. Not just pardon, but full approval and promotion to sonship and inheritance. Amazing. He ran off with his inheritance already. Oh, but man, he is included again. Now, the Bible clearly tells us that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us, who shed his blood, who atoned for our sins, and he took God's wrath. He is now raised, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And that's it. It's that alone. It's that is which, what saves us. I like how C.I. Schofield said it very, very simply. Justification, he says, is that act of God whereby he declares righteous all who believe in Jesus. End quote. Period. Done. So it bears repeating that it is not something earned, but a free gift received, acquitted. Yet in our attempts to keep free grace unadulterated, we we often fumble the ball here we begin to mistake obedience as works and mistake works as evidence of obedience. You understand that? We begin to replace. In other words, you cannot do good works mechanically in an effort to look like a Christian, and you cannot be born again without the evidence being reflected in your life. The Apostle Paul went into great detail on what the debased human race looks like. We've been going through that. What sin, if not dealt with through the blood of Jesus Christ, produces and is lived out in someone's life. Just read chapter 1, 18 through 32. The born-again Christian will equally reflect that new life within him. It will be lived out. So what's in your heart is reflected. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit working in your life through this process of sanctification. Sanctification, that work of God by which he makes righteous those whom he has already justified. It's distinct from justification, but without exception, it always follows it. It's together. Justification and sanctification are distinct, but never separated. This is why the whole reformation of the church happened with Martin Luther. He was being taught by the Roman Catholic Church who still teaches it many times today that the sacraments when taken sanctifies you to justification. Who's earning their way to God? It's the other way around. It's justification then sanctification. That's why When he read Romans, it changed his life. It reformed the whole church, which is the Protestant church came out of that, which is who we are. And that's why we're going through Romans. If it changed and reformed his life and many other giants in the faith, man, why would we never want to teach this and understand it? So justification and sanctification are distinct, but never separated. It's not Christ plus something, it's Christ producing something. You see, the New Testament sometimes seems to speak of justification by works, doesn't it? It sometimes leads us down that road. For example, Jesus spoke of justification and condemnation by your words in Matthew twelve thirty-seven. Even the Apostle Paul, he says, the doers of the law will be justified back in Romans 2:13, and James concluded that a man is justified by works and not by faith only in James 2:24. These statements seem to conflict with Paul's many warnings that, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight." Right where we're at in Romans 3:20. And that the attempt to be justified through law is equivalent to being estranged from Christ and fallen from grace, as it says in Galatians five four. So the solution to the problem lies in the distinction between the works of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit. The fruits of the spirit outlined for us in Galatians five sixteen through twenty five. Not only is Christ's righteousness legally accounted to us as believers, but Christ also dwells in the believer through the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.10 tells us that. And then it creates works. He creates works of faith. We find that in Ephesians 2.10. And so this being true, then the order of events is justification, is grace, faith, and works. Or in other words, by grace through faith resulting in works. Are you with me? Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 give us a great picture, but we often stop short. You know this scripture. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But you know we always stop short, don't we? Not looking at the whole context, not carrying it through, because it goes on and it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what is it demonstrating to us? It is salvation and then the evidence of it. We are his workmanship. Our lives should be evidence of it, not the other way around. It is a work of who then? It is a work of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our lives. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in the born-again believer. I don't know if you've heard of what's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's a catechism written in 1646 and 1647 by the Westminster Assembly. They were a council of English and Scottish theologians who uh, intended to bring the Church of England into greater conformity with the Church of Scotland. And so they had all these definitions of what these things meant. And I like how they defined sanctification happening after justification. And it says, Sanctification, they write, is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, And are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Did you hear that? More and more to die under sin, to die to sin and live to righteousness. Are we perfect? No. Do we look better than we did the day before? That's our hope. That's our prayer. Why do we have all these lists in the Bible telling us how we should live? Is it to try to hold on to those lists and make sure we're doing all those steps? That could be mechanical. Is it our desire to look like that? J.I. Packer, in his book, Concise Theology, this is his definition. His definition of sanctification is this. He writes, the concept is not of sin being totally eradicated. That's to claim too much or merely counteracted. That is to say, too little, but of a divinely route character change, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. It is, he writes, an ongoing transformation within a maintained consecration. It's ongoing transformation within a maintained consecration. We're justified. He's keeping us, but it's ongoing process through life. In other words, it's a process in which the believer grows in holiness while he is held through pardon and promotion through God's grace by the saving blood of who? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Salvation, justification is birth of the Christian life. Sanctification is growth. Justification then by grace does not remove our obligation of obedience to God. I think that's sometimes where we veer off. So all the Apostle Paul is saying here is, you're not saved by your good works. What he's not saying is, so give them all up and never do anything with them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when you come to Christ, You're justified, implanted with the Holy Spirit, and he will produce those good works in you. And through that, you establish the law. You prove the whole thing. What a blessing. So attempting to separate grace from law leads to a logical next step. The tendency then is to separate Jesus from his lordship. It is to say that you cannot accept Jesus now and hopefully he will be your Lord at a later date when you begin to be obedient. No, Jesus said, if you're my disciple, you'll obey me. It's evident. You cannot be saved and then have no manifestation of it in your life. It's impossible. If God truly lives in you, there will be some display of it in your life. Just as there was a display of the evil that there was in your life before. And so when anyone comes to Jesus as Savior and Lord, it demands a commitment of life and obedience to His Word, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, some of us could sit there and think, man, I fall way short. Yeah, we do. Are we perfect? Do we follow it perfect? No. We still battle. But as a deer pants for the water, so my soul panteth for you. Do you still have that desire in your heart? Are you still walking towards the Lord? That's a good check. Is there a willingness to turn from your sin still and turn to Christ as your Lord? This is justification. Clothed in His robe of righteousness, imputed to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, worked out in our lives through sanctification always having the desire to pursue the Lord, even when we fail, we continue to get back up. Even though a Christian may fall seven times, he continues to get back up. And if those things are present, we can walk with assurance in Christ. It's imputed to me. I'm justified. It's been done. verdict is in. What a great picture. This is why it's good news. So we've had the statistics. We've had some definitions. And now we come to some examples. And what are the examples laid out for us then? His promises to us. And what are our responses to them? How is justification lived out in our lives? What does it look like? Well, we start with what it is not. And what it is not is Christ plus anything else. I do not believe that repentance, confession, and the lordship of Christ are errors added to the doctrine of salvation. They are therefore elements of this gracious transformation. They are intrinsic elements. They are elements that follow that. In other words, they naturally belong, they are essential, and they are a part of salvation. It's the evidence. But there are things that are added to the gospel that do corrupt it. Many of them are pointed out for us in Colossians chapter 2, and you can read those. But what they are are philosophy of men, legalism. We see it all today. Well, yeah, it's the Bible, but read these other books. They go with it. It's the Bible, but you have to do all these other things as well. It's Jesus and something else. We see it today. Sacraments even, even with Martin Luther, they don't sanctify you to justification. They don't purify you to justification. You ever heard that? You got to catch the fish before you clean it. You can't clean the fish before you catch it. But that's what we seem to be doing all the time, trying to earn it, and we can't. Obedience, though, obedience, see, those are works. That's Jesus plus. But obedience does not corrupt the purity of salvation. What does it do? It establishes it. It says you're denying yourself, you're picking up your cross, and you're following him. When you're reading God's word, and it points something out into your life, You don't try to argue and reason it. You put your hand over your mouth and you say, I'm sorry, Lord, help me to change. And then a week later, you do it again. And then you say, Lord, I'm sorry, help me to change. And then a week later, you do it again. You say, Lord, I'm sorry, (laughs) help me to change. You know, there's an example I was using with the kids the other day. I remember there were times where I would be talking to somebody and Christina would be with me and I would mention something that she said that bothered her. And so I would apologize to her. Inevitably, I'd be talking to somebody else and I would say something that bothered her and I would apologize to her. And then I would do it again and I would do it again. But she would always share with me that it bothered her and when I would do it again, I wouldn't remember sometimes because it was habitual. It's just something I did. But then it, when I began to think about her, and when I began to think about how it made her feel, I began to change. It began to make me change, and then eventually it went away. Sometimes are these we have habits, sometimes they're habitual things in our lives that we've been doing so long that they're hard to break. Does it make it right? No? But if the Lord's telling us to change it, eventually through His Holy Spirit, He will enable us. Sometimes it'll be right away. Sometimes it won't. I know some Christians that have to go to therapy. I know some Christians who still uh, have to go to AA meetings that are still dealing with difficult habits in their lives. Does that mean that they're not a Christian? Does that mean if they fail one more time, they're going to go to hell? I don't think so. We've been justified. But if they have that desire to serve the Lord and get cleaned up, see, there's a difference. That's the essence of it. That's the essence of it. Obedience does not corrupt the purity of salvation. It establishes it. Colossians chapter 1, 21 and 22 says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works... Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. In other words, this is giving us the picture of a sanctifying work of the Lord. The Lord is doing a sanctifying work through that. But it goes on in verse 23. It's only valid, what? If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Let me ask you a question. If someone comes to you and says, I I don't believe in God anymore. I don't believe in God anymore. But once during their lifetime, they said they were a Christian. Is that person a Christian? It's not a trick question. No, they're not. You can never, once you've truly become a born-again Christian, ever say, I don't love God anymore. I'll never follow him again. There's no possible way. That's not an intrinsic element. If you follow the Lord, the only thing that validates his faith is if you continue in him. The practical aspect of justification is validation through faith. And if there's no practical aspect, there was never any real change. Can you backslide? Yeah, but you would never come to a place where you said, I don't believe in God anymore. When I was in a backslidden state, I never once said that. Never once. I always knew. I knew I was in sin. I knew I was wrong. But never once, never once, did I. could I ever say God's not real. I don't believe in Him anymore. If you are able to say that, then I don't believe you are born again. There was never salvation. I mean, we see those attributes in John chapter 6 about loving your enemies. In John chapter 8, there's the parable of the sower. We see these as intrinsic qualities in the life of the believer. As we read in 1 John 3, if you continue living in sin, you are not saved. That's what the Bible says. If you continue to live in habitual sin, you are not saved. Does that mean you and I as Christians will never sin? No. But man, we will be convicted. We will be rebuked. Why? Because the Lord loves us and he wants us with him. We cannot claim we are born again with no evident changes. Colossians 2.10 says, You are complete in Him. This is all we need to know. We're made complete in Jesus Christ. This, in this whole chapter of Colossians, is the hub of the chapter, and all the spokes go out and attach themselves from there. And he says this in that chapter because there were false teachers adding to salvation. We see that in many of Paul's letters. When talking about false things added to salvation, The list should include Christ plus anything else. Christ plus works, Christ plus rituals, Christ plus man's wisdom. All those are added to Christ. But it should never include confession, repentance, and obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. These are essentials. These are the evidences. And again, just as sin produced the blackness of the natural man, the inward change of heart through Christ will be manifested in our daily lives. Obedience then is not a work. Obedience is a re- result produced by a desire to walk with the Lord. It's like the young man that was out with his friends for dinner and they wanted to go out and party. And the young man asked his friends to just take him home. that He didn't want to go. And they made fun of him, telling him that he was afraid that his dad would find out. He said, I'm not afraid that my dad's going to find out. I'm just afraid of hurting my father. See, he had a genuine desire to please his father. That's the essence of what Paul is saying here. Works are mechanical in an attempt to avoid punishment. Obedience is a desire to follow because there's a deep sense of love and reverence. There's a true heart of change. We love our Father. We don't want to hurt Him. He told me to do this. I need to deny myself. That's the way of the Spirit. It's not Christ plus anything mechanical. It's Christ producing something real. A genuine faith. In genuine salvation, there will be repentance of sin and submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ With it comes acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord and a life exhibited by what? Sanctification. So what does it look like? John 20, 28, Thomas had it right when he fell to the ground and he said, my Lord and my God. Paul likewise, in Acts 9, 3 through 6, he falls to the ground and he says what? Who are you, Lord? And once Jesus told him who he was, Paul says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I shared with you about the thief on the cross the last couple of weeks. It was that thief on the cross outlined for us in Luke 23 who said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man could not drop to the floor physically. He just couldn't because of where he was at. Hanging on a cross. But he did so in his heart. I told you that He did not have time to show through his life that he was a Christian. The graces of the Holy Spirit that we would use to see if he was a Christian were not represented in how we would view it. But that was only half of the view. The other view comes into play today, because I tell you that this man did have time to represent. He did have time to demonstrate these things that he was born again. And the time that he did have as a Christian on earth which wasn't very long at all, his changed life was revealed. And it was revealed in the fact that he called Jesus Lord. He called him Lord. Now you can argue with me and say, but the scripture in Matthew seven twenty one says, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And you could argue that point that this criminal on the cross called Jesus Lord, but he didn't do anything to demonstrate he was a Christian. But he did. Yet the only one that could see it at the time was Jesus. Jesus saw his heart on bended knees crying out to him, Lord, I realize who you are. I realize who I am. I tell you what, given another day, a week, a year, 10 years, his life would have reflected it. He would have gotten up with that lame man, seen with the blind man, been clean with the leper, leaping for joy, proclaiming the Lord to everyone he met. I mean, give this guy more time to live his life. It would have demonstrated the fruits of the Spirit. He would have shown love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, Galatians 5, and 23. And how do I know that this man would have produced these things in his life? How do I know these works would have been manifest? Is it just because he said, Lord? No, it's because Jesus justified him. And how do I know that Jesus justified him? Because Jesus a response to him. Today you will be with me in paradise. And once justified, it is exactly how Paul puts it in Romans, Romans 8.30. Whom he justified, he will also glorify. If he's justified you, he will keep you and glorify you. Therefore, the day that you said, Lord, you are my master, you are my savior, I want to live a life for you. And Jesus looks at you and says, today you will be with me in paradise. And you know what? That day may have been 10 years ago may have been 20 years ago, but guess what? He said, today you will be with me. Today, from that day on. From that day on. That's justification. In other words, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the end, and don't let anybody rob you of that. Anybody. That's his promise. That's what he will do. Don't let anybody tell you any different, because you will not live a life victorious in Christ, You will not live a life when you mess up, Satan will grab hold of that. And then you'll have somebody teaching that, oh, you're in sin. Oh, you're not going to heaven. We must get this right. We must cement this. The moment you and I, like the criminal on the cross, recognize who Jesus was, Savior, and what he was doing, dying on the cross for my sins, our hearts bended to that lordship. And on that day he told us. Today you will be with me in paradise. But that promise has not changed. It continues. We were justified that day. Pardoned. And guess what? Promoted. Roved and included. And if we are true born again Christians. He has been faithful to keep us since. It's not you trying to keep it. He is doing the work. But there must be evidence. There must be obedience. There has to be. There has to be repentance. There has to be submission. And there has to be surrender. Do you see those things in that in your life? Because if you don't today, if you recognize Him as Lord and Savior, today you can be with Him in paradise. See, there are people laying on beds right now that have never been saved. Some think they have been saved. But they've never made Jesus their Lord. The evidence has never been in their lives. And they're laying there questioning a lot of things in their head. Some people are telling them that they are saved when they're not. Why would you listen to anybody else rather than deep in your heart just to say, Lord, am I right with you? Because I want to be. And how do I be? Hey, you just accept me right where you're at. Then you'll be justified. Today you can be with the Lord in paradise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And man, we thank you for setting a good foundation to the good things to come in these chapters coming up, Father. Help us to cement these things into our minds, into our brains as we work out our own salvation, Lord, as your word says. We know not everybody believes, Lord, in the way we're teaching. We understand that. We understand that there will be those, Father, trying to label us as eternal. We're in eternal security, whatever it might be. Lord, I don't care, Father. They'll be telling us that we're five-point Calvinists, Lord. I don't even know what the five points are. Father, they'll be labeling us as uh, Arminianists, Father, all these isms that are out there, Lord. And you know what? I don't care, Father. I just want to teach what your word is saying right here. And Lord, I believe what you're saying about justification. That legal term, I have been made right with you, and there's nothing that can change that, Lord. Not height nor depth. Nothing can take me from your love, not even myself. And Father, I can never give back my salvation. If I'm truly born again, I can never say there is not a God. And I thank you for that assurance. And now, Lord, we can go on to what lies ahead. We leave what lies behind to go on to what lies ahead. It is my desire, Lord, not to give any unbeliever a false hope, but to give the true believer a sense of assurance. And if there's anything that is not of you today, I pray that you help them not remember. it. But through your Holy Spirit, Father, I pray that you would solidify hearts of assurance in your precious children, Lord. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. God bless you guys.